You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Sarah Langan on the show with me today. She has an amazing new book. It's called Good Neighbors, and this is a must-have for your uh, you know, winter leading into spring uh, reading. This needs to be on your bedside table and uh, one of those books that you uh don't want to go to sleep at night for for many good reasons as you read it um welcome to the show sarah oh hey thanks for having me i'm uh, i'm really glad to be here i'm excited to have you uh, sarah we begin each show with the same question and that question is what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller oh this is like it's such a cliche i think i was um my family went on a vacation to moosehead lake maine and I was four years old and it's like a freshwater lake and it's beautiful. And there's these giant rocks we went climbing on. And I sat by myself on the rocks and looked at this beautiful lake and decided I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it sounds made up, but it's true. That's not a cliche at all. That's, that's a moment of inspiration. Yeah, I, it's a fond memory. Were you, a, were you a bookish kid? Did you read a lot? I was. Uh, I I don't think uh, I read. There were some kids who were a lot more bookish than I was, but probably at least a book a week. You know, I was. And then when I would fall in love with a book, I would read it 10 times. I was like a fan. Right, right. Um, where Do you remember, were there any standout things um, uh, uh, from an uh, for a particular book or an author or a series that really connected with you? Oh, when I was a kid, there was uh, Dory the Witch um, was like a an early reader book written in the 1960s about this little girl who was a witch and her mother was a witch and she came from a coven of witches. And I love these stories. And uh, I I think I read all of them and I got them from my daughters and they're great. Um, and then as I got older, Ray Bradbury really hit it for me. Like yeah. I remember reading Fahrenheit 451 when I was in, I think, ninth grade. And then I didn't go to bed. I just sat all night. And I remember my father like coming down to get a snack and being like, what is happening? And I was like, did you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm planning my revolt against the man. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> like, do you know what's happening now? That's the thing. And he, I, to his credit, he sat down with me and was like, let's, let's talk about your existential crisis. <laughs> <laughs> so. Good old Ray Bradbury. He seemed like such a nice guy to have given so many people uh, crises. Oh, but he's so hopeful. That's the thing about him. You know, the, the reason you believe everything he writes is because it feels so true. And then he'll find that good thing about people and write about that. Yeah. So um, speaking of Ray Bradbury, I'm, I'm glad you you made that connection uh, for me because uh, Bradbury was a huge proponent 
of writing short stories and that people, his belief, and, and I, you know, have read this from him on, on multiple sources and occasions was that, that people should begin by writing short stories and write a story every week for a year, because surely you can't write 52 bad stories. Um, <laughs> eventually you'll, you'll strike upon something that's good. Um, did, did, uh, how did your writing life begin? Where, were you, uh, did you prescribe, uh, uh, to Bradbury's thoughts on short stories or, um, oh, I, yeah, I mean, I love short stories. I, those are what I definitely started with. Um, but I've always had, uh, uh, an instinct toward a longer form. Yeah. So, uh, even when I write short stories, I think I could make that enough. Like, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think particularly in craft, short stories make a lot more sense than novels because they are a microcosm. You are figuring out, even if it's just a short story, and I don't mean just a short story, you still have to have a character arc and you have to have a plot. Um, so learning to do that without having to get lost in 300 pages and exhausting yourself makes a lot of sense for a starting out writer. Right. So from that moment when you were a kid and and uh, staring at the water and just having this epiphany that you would be a writer um, to you publishing your first book, uh, was this a clear path from that moment forward? Or were you like a lot of us who have these dreams and desires, but, you know, the little thing called life gets in the way and, you know, there's paying bills and raising family and, and all of that stuff. Where where did uh the the writing career come back to you? Well, um, I always knew that's what I wanted, but I mean, it seemed so high in the sky that I never even told people other than my, my dad and my mom, because, you know, I, you would say that and people would say, that's nice. You should right. be a theater critic. And you'd be like, <laughs> well, that's not the same as what, you know, it's a good job, but it's not the same as what I want to be. Um, so I never told anybody, but the reason I picked the college I picked was because it had a degree in creative writing and I specifically wanted to do that. Um, but even in college, it was so competitive to get into that program that I had to really fight to get in and everybody wanted it. And you couldn't even say even the undergraduates who were majoring in creative writing, none of us were saying, I want to be a writer because it was too uh, momentous. And also because people tended to say that's never going to happen for you. So, um, so then I went to grad school right after I got the degree in creative writing and I was not a star in that program. You know, there's always favorites and I was never one of them. Um, so, you know, happily I had very supportive parents. I mean, you know, they, they just always thought, well, you know, if you really want to have this happen, stop complaining about it and just do it. And who cares if people think you're not as good? Like everybody's always, you know, there's always going to be better people than you. So don't worry about it. Um, so then I went to grad school for creative writing. And at that point, everyone was saying they wanted to be writers. And that was, you know, overwhelming too. And I think I graduated at I guess I was 22 or 20 now, maybe 23 when I graduated. I was working on my first novel, The Keeper, then. 
And, you know, and then I just was working day jobs and things. And I never after that said, uh, I wanted to be anything other than a writer. Um, you know, I worked nights, I worked weekends, I did everything that I could. And I still didn't get that book published until I was 30. So it took um, nine years. Oh, was that book The Missing? That was The Keeper. The, the Keeper. First, yeah. And then The Missing was just part of the, they said, write another one in a year. <laughs> I said, okay. <laughs> I mean, I've already done this. Why not? Yeah. Oh, what was, uh, so was The Keeper the first book that you had written? Yes. That's that's interesting because a lot of people will write that first novel. Um, it doesn't find an audience and they'll move on and, you know, try again and try again. And then, you know, they wind up with these novels that become desk drawer novels or trunk novels or whatever we call them. Um, what was it about this book that you believed in? Uh, that kept you, you know, revising it or, you know, trying other outlets or what, what was it about this, this story that was special to you? Um, I just felt passionate. I, I'm trying to think it's a really good question and no one's ever asked me that before. And I know that in my, in my personality, I'm just not someone who's able to move on from things. <laughs> You know, I, it, it would be smart. There's so many times in my life that if I had walked away and said, I'll just write another book that'll take me six months and then it'll be fine. And it's what everybody wants and I can make a living. You know, instead, I would say, no, I'll get this right. And I think that's just part of my personality. And it's often to my detriment and sometimes good. Um, but uh, the thing about that story was I felt it's very much an underdog story and very much a story that people shied away from because it was so dark. And I think being in my twenties, there's never another time in your life when you're going to force people to listen to your story. That's horrible because you're pissed off. And I think, um, if, if I was, it, I would never have let that go. At that age, at this age, I'd say, you know what? I don't need to upset people. I can move on and do something different because I have more, uh, I'm more mature and more aware of other people's feelings and things. But, you know, that, that fire in my belly of my twenties, that was part of it where I thought, I don't want to tell another story. This is the story. This is a good story. Someone better take it and I'll make sure I'll find a way. So do you remember the first inspiration for the keeper? What, what that first kernel of an, of an idea was? Um, so I uh, went to college in a town called Waterville, Maine, and it was a former paper mill town and you can see the paper mill and it yeah. wasn't running anymore, but it was sort of that, that decaying new England going on. And then there were a lot of town versus uh, gown relations that were not great. And I lived off campus my, my senior year, and I just noticed a lot of uh, frustration um, from, the, from the actual townspeople, and they had a lot of um, resentments, probably a lot of which were legitimate. Um, and I was just curious about that, and I was curious about what it's like to live in a place 
where everybody else seems to be moving forward and you're not. And so I wrote from that perspective. And um, that that book came out, uh, was it about 2009 when that book was, was released? I think it was earlier. I think it was, was it? 07. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. So from from there, you followed up. Um, you have a couple of other novels, The Missing and Audrey's Door. Um, your new book, Good Neighbors, uh, takes a, a bit of a tonal shift from your previous work to this one. Um, first off, how would you describe your earlier work? And, and what would you say is different about Good Neighbors from the work that you had done prior? Um, well, I think my earlier work uh, was clearly horror um, and had supernatural things happening in it. Um, and I think my, the convention that I used was sort of cathartic, uh, slasher endings, um, which is just part of the, the very fun convention of horror. Um, and, uh, for good neighbors, I just didn't feel the need to incorporate anything supernatural into the story. It's you know, it's a thriller and it's about human relationships and the most specific human relationship that it's about is these two mothers and a misunderstanding that they have between each other. That's the impetus for everything that happens afterward. And that to me was really important and personal and uh, didn't need any bells and whistles. And that's not to knock horror because I love horror, but in horror, you sort of use the monster to represent something. And yeah. I didn't need any representations because I was just talking about what's happening in this relationship. And then as a microcosm of, of sort of the way we all um, seem to not be getting along as well as we should in this country. Do, where does your love of horror come from? Uh, I think I really like to think about why bad things happen. Um, and horror asks that question. It asks that specific question. And a lot of other genres don't. Um, but also, I think I just grew up at the heyday of horror. So when I was reading Stephen King and John Saul, when I was, 10 and 11 and 12, um, that had a huge impact on me. I think that's my whole generation. And you probably love Stephen King as a kid too. Absolutely. Dream Author by Sophie Hanna is an immersive 14-month coaching program for writers at any and every level of experience. And also for those of you who want to write and are just waiting for the right encouragement and guidance to get you started. Your writing dreams should make you happy. For so many of us, our dreams are not a source of happiness. Instead, they cause us stress, guilt, frustration, and even shame. Here's the great news. All of these feelings are natural and all writers experience them. The problem, though, is that when your writing dreams bring you more anxiety than joy, it affects your resolve and your productivity, and you end up not taking the action you need to take in order to propel your dreams in the right direction so that they can stand a strong chance of coming true. That's why Sophie created the Dream Author Coaching Program 
to teach anyone who is passionate about writing how to change the way they build, think about, and pursue their writing dreams in order to become their own most powerful ally and advocate for the rest of their writing life. And more great news. Once you've learned that skill, it lasts forever. Visit dreamauthorcoaching.com to get started today. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started. Um, you you talked about this tonal shift uh, that happened in in Good Neighbors and and realizing that uh, that you didn't need bells and whistles, uh, you didn't need uh, there to be a story behind the story or a, a power behind the thing that's happening, which happens a lot in in horror, especially supernatural horror. There's there's uh, we're we're wrestling with things we can't explain, and 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 there's there's a, another motivation behind people's actions a lot of times um in in good neighbors uh the motivations behind um the things that are happening are almost scarier than horror in a way because you can't point to another entity or another power behind it these this is just human nature gone awry and sometimes that's even more scary when when people act out just because they're people yeah, I think that's true. It was honestly a much harder book to write because my instincts are when I'm when I don't know what to do, I throw in a monster and right. the monster and everybody and it's fun, you know, and and this story uh it wasn't just like I had the characters initially being more archetypal and being more cliched because that's so much easier. Um but as I I wanted to make a better book and kept revising it. Um, what I found was that all of these characters are really sympathetic to me. And it's when things go wrong, it's tragic because they could have gone right. And it's very human, uh, the story. And humans are not bad. I think humans are inherently good. But I think sometimes our better natures can get hijacked um, by our fears and our need to protect the people we love. Uh, the Constantine sisters said that this is uh, like a modern day crucible. What do you think about comparisons like that? I love it. I hoped <laughs> someone would compare it to the crucible. <laughs> and I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it feels like that. It feels like, the world is in a tough place right now. We do have something existential happening and it's global warming. And uh, it's very easy to want to say, well, is it, is it something supernatural? What's making the world like this? Who do we blame for it? Um, it's just much easier to do that than have to realize we all have to, I don't know, we really have to work together right. to, to, to solve these problems. 
the the setting uh, of Good Neighbors, Maple Street, is sort of an idyllic um, setting that we all can relate to in one way or another. Um, what was it about this setting that that uh, sparked your imagination? Oh, so I grew up in a town called Garden City on Long Island, and um, it, this isn't the Garden City I grew up with, and it's obviously different, but I have really warm feelings about the suburbs and where I grew up, which you, which may be surprising given I set something, you know, a thriller uh, there. But what I loved about where I grew up was it, we all knew each other. We all knew each other from kindergarten and we all knew each other's stories and we all had compassion for each other. Um, in, you know, middle school notwithstanding. Um, and I think uh, coming from someplace is I'm really lucky. And I think um, I'm naturally drawn to suburban stories because it's what I know so well. And I have so many fond memories of like my best friend, Kate, and I riding our bike to the pool every day and, you know, walking to my friend's house. And then when I was older and would be visiting my parents in my 20s, I'd still meet all my friends and we'd go to the pub and we'd walk home because it was uh, it was such a safe, safe place to live. Um, the but things can go wrong when people know each other that well. Um, right. And things can go wrong with strangers. Um, and people perceived as different. And uh, where I grew up and the way I grew up in the 1980s, uh, it was homogenous and you could not be different. And I was different. Um, and I think that was hard on me. And I think it was hard on anyone who, who wasn't able to hide their difference since we're all different. Um, and I, that has always stuck with me too. Um, this feeling of being an outsider in a place that I love and also belong. In, in, uh, in this idyllic sitting, uh, setting of, of Maple Street, we meet uh, the Wild family and Wild with an E as, as in their last name, Wild, um, who are a bit of like oil and water uh, for, for this setting. And uh, you know, the dad, Arlo, um, one great description I read about him uh, was uh, he was a washed up rock star, but the only thing he had to show for it were track marks. Um, that tells us so much about this character and this family and uh, and the juxtaposition of them in this uh, setting, um, you know, is bound to make sparks fly. Um, how did the wild family come to you? Um. You know, as you mentioned that, I thought of there was a kid who came from Brooklyn and transferred in in ninth grade to my hometown. And he had an accent and he like openly drank. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he like, was okay. like, like, this is trashy. <laughs> right. And he was so outgoing, but it was shocking and it was obvious and everyone knew who he was. And um, so I think there's that. But I also think um, my family, uh, my husband and I moved to Brooklyn and not just Brooklyn, Crown Heights, like and 
we loved it and we knew everyone on our block and it was like Sesame Street and everybody was different and and it was exactly where we belonged. And then our kids got older and it was not a safe place for them. And the school, the public school was not right for them. And we moved and we moved to Los Angeles and we moved to a suburb of Los Angeles called Laurel Canyon. That feels very much like the suburbs. And I'm so out of practice with even pretending that I'm socially appropriate that we got here and we were just fish out of water. And, you know, it's, we found our way, but it was, it was comic, you know, it was just comic. I'm like outgoing. And sometimes I put on more of an accent that I actually have because I don't know, it just happens. And um, that did not fly here. So, you know, uh, I had to learn some things and it was really lonely. And having moved, you know, I, uh, I didn't realize that moving was lonely because I never really had to do it before. I grew up in my hometown. I never left it. And then, you know, my parents were nearby when I lived in Brooklyn and I knew everyone there. I'd made these slow earned friends over decades. We got here. I knew no one. And it was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. Um, I just the feeling of isolation and when you pick up your kids and your kids haven't made any friends and you haven't made any friends and it's a long weekend and you see everyone going to go do all the things that they're inviting each other to and you're not in on it. It feels awful. So I think um, I think I was thinking of that, too. You know, it it feels a lot uh, in this book like. Uh, when you are driving down the road and you can see in the distance uh, there's a train coming uh, and you see traffic over here and and you just you just know in your heart something bad is about to happen and you can see it but you're not close enough to do anything about it but you just know that this is this is going to be uh, sparks are going to fly and you get that feeling in reading this when you when the wilds move in and and you start you know they they share too much too soon and you're like oh man i just i, I feel what's going to happen um you know as you started writing this and you you kind of felt the tensions uh rising and and you knew that the the cast of characters you had created um did you know where the story was going to go and uh you know how did you uh, you know as you kind of put yourself in the tension of the situation did did you understand how the characters were going to react? You know, I knew how I wanted it to end. Um, and I, I wrote that opening um, and my plan was for it to go in that direction. So the problem for me was figuring out what combination of personalities would make that happen. So I, I really the hardest character I had to work on uh, was was the way that Rhea and Gertie bounced off of each other. Yeah, because I I wanted it to be something where it would have made perfect sense if they had actually become best friends. And it's something sad that they don't because you can see the ways that they really could have been good for each other. 
but it also, I wanted it to be, yeah. And I had to keep working and researching narcissistic personality disorder. And, um, I researched, uh, Kitty Genovese, you know, that story. Yeah. Yeah. So like briefly, um, in the seventies, New York was supposed to be a terrible crime place. And in a story of this woman, Kitty Genovese was screaming outside her building while being murdered by her boyfriend and no one helped her. That's what everyone said happened. But then I researched and I thought, oh, well, maybe I have things that I could when researching mob mentality, I could really look at this and and borrow from it, these real life examples. But every time I research these real life examples, I debunked them. You know, I would find yeah. out, oh no, Kitty Genovese died in her neighbor's arms. Her neighbors all called the police. The police lied about it because they didn't want to admit they hadn't shown up. And she had good neighbors. And uh, the Stanford prison experiment, the same thing. That was just a totally bogus experiment. And this, this, you know, we have this narrative that we're inherently bad people or that we're not bad people, but the strangers are bad people. And given the opportunity, they're going to do something bad. Um, but most of the time, that's not true. Most of the time, um, we're just, uh, we are giving each other the benefit of the doubt. So what I really had to do was think about, well, what, what would move a community to turn on the wild family? Not just there being strangers, but what else would do it? What kinds of um, gossip and rumors would make that happen? Who would spread them and why? So... You know, in uh, in a lot of uh, literature, you you have a a protagonist who um, is uh, likable for whatever reason, but the the uh, the reader kind of hooks on to that reader uh, to that character, and we go through the story with them. Um, what what is it uh, like to write a story where there's not one character? who is a shining hero. Um, everyone has faults. Uh, how do you, how do you make likable characters, uh, in a situation where so much goes wrong? Um, I, I kind of resist the idea of the likable character and it's not, it's because I think all characters are likable if you're writing them as honestly and truly as, as you can so that they seem real because I think all people are likable. There's yeah. some side of them, especially if you know them or you know their internal thoughts or you know why they're acting the way that they are. And um, so, so I had that. And then also, I really, I love the wilds. And it's strange to me that uh, acknowledging their imperfections might make them less likable as opposed to more human. Um, you know, I mean, there's the Jack Reacher school of writing where you would have like this, this amazing guy, you know, who knows everything. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know where the room is for them to, to, to grow or be. Um, so I feel like Gertie, uh, her whole life, all she's wanted to do is be better and get better. And she works for it so hard. And when I have her make mistakes, um, I can feel her pain. 
I didn't even like writing when she made mistakes. And it wasn't because I was afraid people wouldn't like her. It was because I didn't, I felt bad for her that she had to live with a mistake she made <laughs> because it's awful. Right. And uh, so I, I, I'm surprised when people say that they, they didn't find the wilds likable. I'm not really sure. <laughs> I disagree with them. Um, but, uh, but Julia, you know, I, I, I think Julia is a great character. And I actually think Sheila is a pretty, Shelly is a pretty good character too. Absolutely. Well, um, Sarah, after having, uh, you know, really uh, planted your tent stakes in horror and, and really made a name for yourself in that genre, um, then switching over and and writing more of a a thriller, a domestic thriller, however you want to categorize this book. um, Do you, are, are you more, comfortable in this new genre do you, do you think in the future you might go back and forth or um how do you feel about the constraints of genre now so uh yes it was really hard to figure out how to do this uh to write not in horror genre to be telling the same kinds of stories but without monsters right. um and i feel like i've learned that and so I'm going to keep doing it because, you know, I like using the skills, but the idea of genre constraint, um, what I'm finding is that monsters aren't as interesting for me to write about as they used to be. And I like a more subtle story. Um, and I think that's just where I am in the world right now. So. I think you could still qual- categorize what I do as horror. It's just um, less visceral. And the reason I'm less into the visceral is it just feels like it takes the reader out of the story. Or it, maybe it takes me out of the story. Um, you know, if, if, if a monster so- shows up and somebody has to stab it, this isn't really happening and we all know it's not really happening. So it's, which is stupid. It used to drive me crazy. So I don't, I don't know how I've come around on this because I would think to myself, but none of it's really happening. Why are they upset and saying monsters aren't real? <laughs> stories. None of it's real. We've made it up. But I, I think I'm just um, right now, what I'm interested in is, is making people think what I'm doing is as true to life as possible. And what a fantastic job you've done uh, with Good Neighbors. Uh, the book is available everywhere now when you're hearing this in Kindle edition or hardcover or audiobook. However you like to consume books, you can grab Good Neighbors. Now it's the, there are show notes in the, uh, there, there's a link to the book in the show notes of this episode. I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> Sarah, if, if people are just learning about you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, is there a place where they can connect with you online? Oh, yeah. Um, you can go to sarahlangan.com, S-A-R-A-H-L-A-N-G-A-N.com, or I'm also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Excellent. We'll put links to all those in the show notes as well. Uh, Sarah, this has been so much fun chatting. Um, I love Good Neighbors. We're going to send everyone to grab a copy of it. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. And we'll cut it right there. Uh, that was fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Oh, great. Thank you. That was really nice. And I really thanks for the work you're doing and thanks for reading it. Um, 
Thank you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. Uh, when we release this uh, next week, we'll send you a link to it and we'll promote it everywhere. That's awesome. I'm Great. excited. I'm very nervous. It's been a long time since I had a book out. <laughs> oh, it's going to be fantastic. People are going to love this book, I promise. I hope um, so. <laughs> but uh, thanks, Sarah. Let's stay in touch. I'd love to have you back sometime. I would love to, too. Thank you so All much. Right. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.